I'm Jasmine Moradi, and you are listening to the Power of Audio, Science, and AI. My guest today is my friend, Dr. Amy Belfi. We met for the first time when I visited her at New York University in 2017, when she was a postdoctoral associate in the Department of Psychology. Today, Amy is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychological Science at Missouri S&T, which is also a mentor and a teacher. Amy has a BA in psychology from St. Olaf College, a PhD in neuroscience from the University of Iowa, and a postdoctoral training from NYU. Her amazing research is all about music and the brain, where she's super curious about answering questions such as, why does a song have the ability to evoke the feeling of chills down our spine? And why does music remind us of memories that we've long forgotten from our past? She has received 22 honors and rewards, reached 30 plus publications, and when Amy is not conducting research, she's educating the world about her fascinating findings in major conferences. In this episode, Amy and I are going to discuss the ins and outs of her research findings on how and why music influences our thoughts, emotions, feelings, and behaviors. With that, Amy, I welcome you and thank you so much for joining us. It's so lovely to see you again. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. It's finally springtime here. so. <laughs> and I'm so excited to do this with you. So let us jump into it. Perfect. I'm curious to know when and what is your earliest memory of music? I... Remember like singing in church choir when I was really little, like preschool age. Um, I, I don't have any really vivid memories, but it's just like very vague remembering like standing in front of the church singing little, I don't know, church songs. Um, so I always kind of liked music and participated in music as a kid. My first probably like, I, I also have like good memories of um music class in elementary school. Like I really liked music class. And I remember that, that we had a room with like a bunch of keyboards in it and we would all practice, you know, learning how to read music and playing keyboard and stuff in elementary school. So that was really fun. Um, my first like really, really vivid memory of music is um, getting a piano when I was 10, I think. And I remember like, I've, that's probably my, one of the most like excited moments I ever was in my life is when I like, like this big truck pulled up and like they pulled the piano out of it and brought it into my house. I was like so incredibly excited um, and I was like around 10. But before that, I mean, I always liked music, but nothing really sticks out in terms of like a specific instance until that like piano moment. And what about now? Do you play the piano or are you bringing music yeah, so into your life? I was, I mean, like I was very into piano growing up, like practiced a lot did a lot of competitions and stuff all through high school and then through college I took lessons um and then unfortunately since grad school it's like piano is not a very portable instrument so I really haven't played much since college but I'm like moving into a new house soon that's bigger and I like 
determined we have a space for a piano so I will get a piano someday and <laughs> get back to it so we both love music but we also love science and digging into my own past I've always been super interested in science in terms of testing hypotheses in the real world and with your amazing research background in music and the brain I'm now curious to understand what was it in your inner motivational drive as a girl that drew your attention to scientifically seeking answers on how the brain responds to music? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, like I said, I've kind of always been interested in music, always really liked music. Um, I, growing up, always kind of considered music as a potential um, career, but, and I always really liked science and school and academics too. Um, and so, you know, growing up, I hadn't really ever thought that science could be a career in the same way that like music, I, what's fun, which is funny too, because I'm like, <laughs> probably the odds are better that someone would become a scientist than would become a professional musician. <laughs> but I just like piano, I was like, okay, well maybe I'll be like a music performance major and like try and become a professional pianist. Very unlikely. Um, so once I realized that that was highly unlikely, um, I just was like, well, I don't know what I want to do then. And it really wasn't, like I said, I was always interested in school and I always kind of liked, like I did science fairs as a kid and stuff, but um, no area of science really like clicked with me until I took an AP psychology class in high school. And then I was like, oh my gosh, this is like oh, so interesting. Like finally, like I found a topic that I'm so interested in. So I really liked um, all the psychology classes I took in undergrad and I really liked doing research as an undergrad, but it didn't even like click to me that I could kind of combine the two of like music and science until probably partway through my undergrad, I was reading like some papers about, you know, music, like neuroimaging papers with like music. Um, and I just thought that was so cool. And so then I was really lucky enough to be able to pursue that, these topics when I got to graduate school. But yeah, it was kind of a long progression of like having these interests but not really combining them until later on in life well I'm happy you took that path uh, because what I love about your research is that it is grounded in the world of psychology medicine and neuroscience and in one of your studies you investigated the hypothesis that damage to the left temporal pole in our brain would be associated with impaired naming of famous musical melodies you have found the part of the brain that let us recognize music. So teach us about your findings and regarding the connection between music and our memories. Yeah, so this was like my first real study in grad school. I was very excited. Um, so I based this prediction on previous research from the lab that I was training in where they had found that patients with damage to the left temporal pole. So that's like, if, I don't know, I'm looking at this, this is the left side of my brain, kind of like here, I guess the, the, the most anterior front, more, most forward part of the temporal lobe of the brain. So patients who have damage to that area had difficulties um, naming famous persons and famous landmarks. So if you showed them a picture of a famous, I don't know, Barack Obama or something, they could say like, oh, well, that was a former president of the United States. They could give you some information about the person, but they wouldn't be able to provide the name. So naming deficits with, um, we call them semantically unique items, these items that have a proper name. 
essentially. So they have problems with land with faces, problem, problems with naming landmarks. If you showed them like St. Louis Arch, where I live, um, they would, you know, maybe be able to tell you information about it, but wouldn't get the name. So then I thought, well, are musical melodies similar to those other categories? You know, they they melody melody is named with a proper name. So I thought, could we do we find the same finding? Are these patients um, do they have a deficit in naming melodies? So what we did in this task is we presented uh, individuals with damage to the left temporal pole, a bunch of different melodies. These were like, um, you know, row, row, row your boat, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, um, Twinkle, Twinkle Little Star, things that most people in our culture, American culture would recognize and be able to name pretty easily. So we presented these melodies to a bunch of people with no brain damage, a bunch of people with damage to the left temporal pole, and people with damage elsewhere in the brain to control for just the general effects of brain damage. We want to see if it's really due to that specific area of damage. So what we found was that the healthy people with intact brains were really good at this task. They could name most of the melodies. The people with damage elsewhere in the brain also were really good at the task, but the people with the temporal polar damage um, were significantly worse at naming the melodies than the other two groups. So it does seem to be the case that the melodies are similar to like famous people or famous places and that they are denoted by a proper noun and that damage to the left temporal pole results in or is associated with deficits in naming melodies and these other categories of items. So in that way, it seems like melodies are similar to other categories of uh, semantically unique items. Do they recognize the melodies, but they can't remember the, the, the name or the title of it? Yeah, exactly. So that's that's a, another distinction. Um, that so so what was really interesting is that they they could recognize the melodies. So we would ask them to test the difference between recognition and naming. Is naming is they have to provide the name. Recognition is they can provide any other information that shows they know the the melody. So in the case of the the persons, like I gave you the example of Obama, they would say he was a former president. That shows recognition, but they couldn't come up with a name. So in, it's a little different with the melodies. Mm. But what we asked them to do is continue like humming or, or singing along with the tune to show recognition, or they could tell us some of the lyrics. And so the, the, the patients with the temporal pole damage had no issues with that. They could recognize the melody. They could continue singing it but they just couldn't come up with the name. So it was an issue connecting the melody itself to the name of the melody, that there's this disconnect between the knowledge of the melody with the knowledge of the name of the melody. So it's, I think, a really interesting distinction between recognition and naming. Wow, very fascinating. And, and as, as you're explaining it, music is a strong intervene with our memories and emotions. And You've spoken a lot about this, but for example, hearing a song from our past can transport us back in time, triggering the sights, sounds, and feelings of an event. And I'm pretty blessed because I understand seven languages and it gives me the ability to connect deeply with all the memories, emotions, and association I have with each culture and language. And you've also studied the association between music and vivid autobiographical memory then teach us about this subject. Yeah, so this is kind of another area that I've looked at. I just came up with this. I remember like vividly driving with a, some of my friends in the car and I don't remember which song it was, but we were, we were just listening to music and we were talking about music and talking about like how kind of 
crazy it is that you can hear a song and it just like transports you back to a time or it brings back these very vivid memories. And I, at that moment was like, I wonder if anyone's studied that. I was in grad school at the time. And so I looked into the literature on it and there were a, a handful of papers looking at this. Um, and, but no one had really compared music to other types of memory cues. So I think a lot of people have an intuition that music is better or this particularly good way to cue memories. But until I had done my original study, no one had really compared music to other types of sensory cues. So um, in my initial, initial study, I was just wanting to see, are memories cued by music different than memories cued by other things? Um, so in this study, what we did was we compared memories evoked by music to memories evoked by pictures of, of famous people, the same famous people we used in the previous study. Um, so what we did in this task, we had participants come into the lab. Um, they listened, we played 30 different pieces of music. Then the question with all these studies is how do you choose the music? <laughs> this is very idiosyncratic on an individual basis. Um, we used a method that was um, developed by Peter Janata, who's at UC Davis, and he was the person who really kind of pioneered these, this topic. Um, he had published a couple papers on this when I had started my research on it. So what this method of selecting songs is, is you, um, we have a bunch of tracks from the Billboard top Hot 100 year-end charts, and we would randomly select um, songs based on the participant's age. Mm -hmm. So there's a finding in memory research called a reminiscence bump, which is this period of life that you have if asked to provide autobiographical memories where you tend to provide memories from this period, which is like late adolescence, early adulthood. So we picked songs from that period of life. So someone my age, like early thirties would hear songs from like, you know, like early 2000s to mid 2010s or so. Um, uh, so like you, the, the whole point of this is picking the songs that people are highly likely to know. You know, there's a lot of research showing that people develop their musical tastes around that period of life too. So we play them a bunch of these songs. And after each song, we ask them like, did that trigger a memory for you? And if so, please describe the memory in as much detail as you can. We audio recorded all of the memory descriptions. And we did the same thing with a bunch of pictures of celebrities. So like I would see pictures of people who are famous in like, the early 2000s to the late 2010s, like pictures of Lady Gaga or whoever, I don't know, just like famous celebrities from that time. Um, and the same thing, we'd show the celebrity and we'd ask them, does this trigger a memory for you? If so, please describe the memory. So then what we wanted to do is see, are these memories different between the two conditions? And what we did was we looked at these, you know, we had these long memory descriptions, um, you know, something like, oh, hearing that song reminded me of driving in the car with my friends in high school. It was like a hot summer night and the windows were down and we were sticking my hand out the window and the wind blowing on it. So we would take that and then we'd, we'd break it down into the component parts. We'd say, okay, um, the time was in high school. The location was in a car. The, some of the perceptual things were feeling the the air blowing on me and feeling the hot weather. And so we categorize each of those details as either being relevant to the memory or not relevant to the memory. And then we'd see, okay, how much of this description that you gave me actually contains information that's relevant to the memory. And so what we found was that the memories cued by music tended to be more, I'm using the word relevant, but we would say like episodically detailed or episodically rich. It has more details about the actual episode or event. Um, the music evoked memories tended to have a greater proportion of these types of details, whereas the face memories tend to be like, oh, I remember going to see this movie on a date 
and um, Clint Eastwood, what is in the movie. And Clint Eastwood also did this movie, this movie, this movie, this movie. So they would tend to focus more on the person and describing their um, knowledge of the person rather than a, an episode of their life. So it seems to be the case that the music evoked memories tend to be very episodic, whereas the face evoked memories tended to be more just factual information about the celebrities themselves. Well, song so, is more emotional, right? It, and, and, and if you see in a picture, you're mostly like, as you say, you're connecting it with that person. Uh, but, but what is it? What is it about music and that area of like youth that makes it sticky? <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, it's a, it's a good question. Like, like I said, this was an initial study, which is just looking at, are the memories different? Um, and now I'm interested in looking more at like, well, how does music trigger the memories? Why are these memories more detailed than at least the memories evoked by the images of faces? Um, I don't really have an explanation yet. Part of me thinks that music is kind of a contextual cue and that it's like in the background while we're doing a lot of activities and while we're, you know, going to parties and our wedding and like our prom and these kind of big events, there's music there. Um, and I think that might be one, sometimes people criticize and they say, well, that's, the faces is a bad comparison or TV shows would be a bad comparison because music is in the background while you're doing things. Whereas these other things are just the focus. So you're focusing on the image of the movie and it's not in the background. I'm like, well, well maybe that's something that actually makes music unique relative to other stimuli is that it's like always in the background. So I think in some ways music might be a good cue to kind of like put us back in that experience that we had originally because it was actually part of that, that exact experience. So I think maybe that's one of the explanations that music is a good cue to kind of bring us back to that original context that we were in when we had were doing the you know event. Now I would like to jump into music in branding and we've proven that working with audio branding uh, finding the right choice of sound and music is essential as it's deeply connected to associations. And if brands get it wrong, they will communicate the wrong message and their marketing efforts are wasted. You've studied the psychological models of perception. So teach us about your findings in aesthetic judgment of music. Yeah, so kind of shifting out a little bit of the brain damage research, I, um, during my postdoc work, got interested in, I like to say like, why we like what we like, like how do we determine what we like in terms of music? And um, one of my kind of initial questions was, I think a pretty simple one, just how, how much music do you, how much of a piece of music do you have to listen to before you know if you're gonna like it or not? Mm -hmm. um, thinking about, you know, flipping this radio stations in the car. Um, I think this is particularly relevant to like branding because you have such a minimal amount of time to convey a kind of feeling about a, a brand or a product that like it's you you want to know how much time you have before somebody, somebody's made a decision. Um, so I did a study, a series of studies where we um, presented short snippets of music to people and they were increasingly got longer and longer. And after each snippet, we just asked them, rate how much you like this on a scale. Um, and then we wanted to see, okay, at what point, so if we start with a short clip and that gets longer and longer and longer, each time we ask them, rate how much you like it. And then we have them listen to a long version of the piece of music. At what point did their rating actually match their rating of the longer piece? We wanna see, you know, if you heard, uh, 
two seconds of the music and you said, I give it a 10 out of 10. When you heard the full piece, did you also give it a 10 out of 10 or did your opinion change? Like, so how much time do you need for your opinion to be the same opinion you have at the end of the piece, the full piece? So what we found was that in a bunch of different experiments, it's really on the level of hundreds of milliseconds, like within less than a second, people were forming opinions and they were making aesthetic judgments about how much they liked the music that were highly accurate with the judgments they would make of a longer version of the piece of music. Um, so I think that's the main takeaway that these kind of snap judgments that we make end up being very highly accurate with how much we would like something at, on, at the end. So, you know, even if you present a sound to someone for a very short period of time, they're going to have an opinion about it. And it's probably going to be the same opinion they would have if they listened to it for even longer. Um, that so sounds really like that really shows how important it is. How, how quickly we make judgments of something yeah. that people say, oh, it's just background music or, you know, it's afterthought, but how important it, it, it is. So what would you say based on this, like findings, like would be uh, advice to brands when they're choosing a, a, a song? Yeah, I would say that definitely it matters um, that people do form opinions very quickly. And that even if, yeah, even if you have a very short amount of time that people are going to have an opinion about even what you think might be like a really short <laughs> stimulus, that it, it will influence their decision. And it would probably like that, that the snap judgments that people make are actually accurate judgments. And another of your research areas touches the famous melodies stimulus set. And for me, this is a very interesting and relevant topic because um, both in my own music research and in discussion with my uh, friend, Dr. Bradley Wines from my previous podcast, he and I spoke around that choosing famous and well-known songs in audio branding is not always beneficial. So let us talk about your nearer findings around this area and your thoughts and learnings around brands using famous melodies in their audio branding. Yeah, so my, the famous Melody Stimulus is a recent paper that I published, and that actually was derived from my very first work that we talked about with the patients with the temporal pole. So in that task, as I said, we presented them with a bunch of famous melodies like Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, et cetera. And um, for that first paper, I had to generate all these melodies myself. I had to come up with a list. And I really always wished that there was like a, a, a stimulus set already available that I could have just used. Um, and so now I just decided I'm going to make that stimulus set and put it out there for other researchers to use. So we took all the stimuli I used in that first paper. We did like a online server where we asked people like name most the name, the most famous melodies you can think of. And then we generated all these melodies. Um, we put all the melodies online and we had people rate them for like their emotional content, their familiarity. We asked them to name them. And so the, the whole point of that paper is to create a set of melodies that are highly familiar, recognizable, and that have ratings on lots of different categories. So that other researchers, if they wanted to see, um, you know, using these to see if people with Alzheimer's disease have memory for the melodies, they can just use our stimuli instead of having to reinvent the wheel and create them from scratch. Um, in terms of like brands using famous melodies, um, I can see how yeah, I can see how that might be a negative because everybody has associations with these melodies, whether good or bad, they already have, you know, feelings and semantic associations and memories that they are associate with these. Um, and so that could 
influence how they feel about a brand. And you don't really know, like you don't have, you have less control if you use something famous because then it could be evoking things for other people that you have no idea what it's evoking. Yeah, because it comes in a package, as you say, with a lot of other association, which becomes a distraction then of the focus of, of like, now I have to focus on this adverse, what is the message? You're just like, your your brain goes somewhere else. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's super interesting. And going back to that we first met in NYU in 2017, and you gladly let me try uh, your university's fMRI scan, scan, sorry. And for your information, it was super cool, but super uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how people do that. I could like barely last a minute. <laughs> and I actually found you through... Uh, reading about your research collaboration with Spotify, where you investigated your what you stream, music and driving, the new golden age of audio. Uh, tell us about this collaboration and what kind of findings did you see? So yeah, Spotify, I don't, I'm not even sure exactly how I got connected with them, but it was awesome. Um, it's cool because they're, you know, doing, we're kind of interested in similar questions and they're from the more, you know, applied end and I'm from the more just basic science curiosity about the mind kind of end. Um, but they approached me to work on this project. The big project I did with them was on music and driving. And um, it was a collaboration with them and with Ford cars. And um, Ford was uh, had a new car coming out in, uh, in Europe and they wanted a piece of research about music and driving um, because the car had I think some fancy speakers in it or something. And uh, so we thought, well, what can we study with music and driving? And I'm interested in emotion. And so we designed, and, and it, we had a very short time scale that we had to do this on. Um, we designed this study where we wanted to see how does listening to different types of music in, during your um, commute, morning commute influence your mood for the rest of the day. So we had people, um, we developed four different playlists. And so Spotify has, um, uh, data on all of the their music they um have like features that they designate like i don't know what the names of the features are but the ones we looked at i would call valence and arousal which are two like standard emotional terms like so valence would be how positive or negative emotion is the emotion of the song so a high valence would be like happy or joyful um, or peaceful like positive emotions low valence would be like sad or angry or scared arousal, I think this, they call this energy at Spotify, maybe, I don't remember, but high arousal would be like um, very energizing, um, probably like more fast tempo. So that would be like happy or angry, whereas low arousal would be sad or peaceful. So valence and arousal are separable dimensions. So we created these playlists um, one had high valence, high arousal, one had high valence, low arousal, one had low valence, high arousal, one had low valence, low arousal. And so the music sounded different. So like the high valence, high arousal would be like upbeat, uh, major mode, like happy sounding music, et cetera. So anyway, we took four groups of people, we gave them this play, these playlists and we said, okay, listen to this during your morning commute. Before their commute, they rated their current um, emotional state 
And then right after they com their commute, they rated it again, and then they rated it for up to two hours after the commute. So what we found, which was, I think, the most interesting part, was that the people who had the high valence playlists showed the most changes in their positive mood. So it didn't, or sorry, arousal, not valence. It didn't matter the valence, so the positive or negative, it just mattered the high energy, high arousal music tended to have the strongest impact on their positive mood. So positive mood. So people who listened to these really energizing playlists felt more positive after their commute and that lasted throughout the day. It really shows the, the power that music has. So now, now based on your research, let us uh, go through some questions so you can educate us. Why is music important and why do we like it so much? The whole why is music important question, I think I've had to be trying to answer this for basically my entire career, which has been <laughs> 10 years now, I guess, since I started grad school. Um, especially from the scientific community, when I first started doing this work, I got a lot of pushback, like, why are you even studying this? What's the point of studying music? Which was always a really bizarre question to me because I'm like, well, you listen to music, don't you? <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I'm sure you do. It, I, it's just like a, you know, it, it's interesting to me because it's a very ubiquitous behavior. First of all, just because something is ubiquitous doesn't necessarily mean it's worth studying though. Um, but the interesting part to me is that not only is it ubiquitous, but it's like something that most people really, really, really love. Like people hold it very dear aside from the people who have musical anhedonia. Um, and it's something that, yeah, it's, it's an aspect of our behavior and our, of our everyday lives. And it's something that people really enjoy. And I think we should understand more about, you know, how it influences our behaviors, how it influences our thoughts, how it influences our emotions, um, because it is something that, that we do a lot of and spend a lot of time listening to. So that's why I think it's important to study. Um, why we like it so much is a harder question to answer. I don't really have a good answer um, for that. It's something that I think a lot of us who study music cognition are interested in answering, um, but I don't really have a have a good answer to that. Um, there's there's many. I think I don't think there's a single answer either. Um, I think you know, music can remind us of good times from our past, so that might be one reason you like it. Like uh, sometimes I hear songs that were popular when I was in high school. And I didn't even like the song then, but now I like it now because it reminds me of, of mm -hmm. those good memories. So that's one reason I don't even like the music particularly, but I like the music because it, of the things it that reminds with me memories of. and association that brings so, you back. Mm. Exactly. So that's like one reason that I like music, but that's not the only reason. There's lots of other ways that music, you know, we can think it, it evokes emotions in us. It makes me feel good. It makes me, you know... Um, it sounds interesting or beautiful. So there's these different kind of mechanisms by which music can evoke pleasure or why we like it. And so I don't think there's a unifying answer really. Then I'm interested to know, how does our brain make the decision of our taste in music? And there I need to say that my, my, my previous podcast was, was my professor, uh, Sven Olof Danfeld, and he's like, I love to listen to hard rock music when I do research. And I'm like, I don't ever want to put it on. And we were like, it's so interesting how we can like, you know, different tastes of music. Yeah, this is something also that I'm interested in too. And I don't, again, I don't think I'm going to have definitive answer for any of your questions because these are like very high level questions. Yeah, yeah, super interesting. Um, I think it has something to do with, you know, 
exposure, I think there's like probably some kind of critical periods for, I mean, maybe not going that far as critical periods, but there's like times in your life where like, if you're exposed to this certain types of music during your like late childhood or whatever, that you're going to kind of develop a preference for those types of music. People tend to form their musical tastes during that late childhood or adolescence, early adulthood, like those kind of formative years when you're developing your sense of self and um, those self-image types of things that music can be very associated with your sense of self and who you are and who you are friends with and your cliques and that kind of stuff. So I think part of it is that like exposure during a certain time window of your life. Um, there's probably also personality associations, I think. I was going like, to say that, yeah. Certain personality types are more likely, I think, to like certain types of music than others. I'm not a personality researcher, so I don't want to make strong claims about that, but I think there's some work on that personality with musical taste. Um, so yeah, I think those two things are kind of important contributors to how you develop taste, but I think there's a, really a lot that we don't understand about that yet. Why does a song have the ability to evoke the feeling uh, of chills down our spine? So there's something we haven't really talked about yet, which is the idea of musical expectancy. Um, and so there's been a lot of work in this area and a lot of people have, you know, since the, the 50s, the people in music theory are kind of talking about how uh, expectancies influence our emotional responses to music. So, you know, in hearing like Western music, we've all absorbed the kind of structure of the music that there's certain patterns that tend to happen in, in, a, in a musical key, you tend to hear the same, you know, notes that there's this pattern of the way music is structured in our music system. And even if you're not a musical expert, you learn those kind of statistical regularities of the musical system. And so, you know, musical artists and composers can kind of play with these expectations by either, you know, setting, they can set up a context in which we say expect to hear a C major chord or something. And then they can either give us what we expect or give us something different or something very different. Um, and so it seems to be kind of like a balance between, you know, confirming and, and disconfirming these expectations that leads to this enjoyment of music, or at least that's one contributor. Um, why, in terms of why does the song have an ability to evoke chills? I think it's probably a combination of the kind of musical structure, like people have looked into, I think like a, a crescendo is often associated with the feeling of chills. So I think there's parts of it that are related to like this expectation or this musical structure. But I also think there's other parts that are more idiosyncratic to the individual person because I don't think people have really found certain pieces that are like, this will always evoke a chill in any listener. I think it also sometimes has to do with like the memory. I mean, for me, for me, I'm always like, yeah, a lot of it has to do with memories, but I think it does. Like, I think you know, what's, what's interesting to me is how can you, why does the same song always evoke chills for me? Even if I know what's happening, it's not just like an expectation, you know, violation because I know what's going to happen, but maybe it's because I associate it with like this nostalgic time in my life. And then it gives me these like good feelings. So I think it's a combination of, of personal factors and factors in the music itself. And, and here you're talking about it, it really proved the power of, 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 of sound in a human being. What would you then say 
is the the reason why then brands have neglected it a little bit in the environment of being an important element i don't know yeah the whole why do brands ignore it thing i think it's maybe just a symptom of our you know, reliance on vision as our primary sense of navigating the world. Uh, even in my own field too, I think there's a lot more research or the visual system, I would say is probably better characterized or there's more people working on vision than on other, and then on other sensory systems. Um, and I think that's probably because it's, I don't know, I don't want to say it's like easier or anything, but I think it's people see vision as being our dominant sense as, as humans. And I think that's partially, that's probably partially explains why the other senses have been ignored relative to vision as a sense. It can also be that, that it's easier for us to explain why we like something visually rather than, than the emotions that we feel. And a lot of uh, people are maybe grown up in terms of like, don't feel so much. So we don't really know how to express the feeling we feel mm -hmm. when we listen to that song. There's not words yeah. enough to explain. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's right. I was talking to some students the other day about how like some of the words we use, like uh, talking about imagery, like, like visualize, or even like the word visualize, you can imagine a, a picture in your head and you can do that with sound, but we don't have a word like visualize the sound, like we would have to say visualize the sound, but visualize doesn't make sense when you're talking about sound, but we don't have a word that we don't say like auditorialize or something. So we don't have a word to describe that auditory imagery in the same way we do just say imagery like means visual imagery. So I think that's kind of like your point that you don't even have the words to describe it. <laughs> and how do you measure it? How do you measure yeah. that? that high that people feel when they're listening to it. And you also told me earlier in our conversations that you also work and, and done some testing on live streaming. You want to talk a little bit short about that? Oh yeah. Yeah. So um, this is a totally shifting gears away from the memory Alzheimer's stuff. Um, this was a project we just published, I don't know, two weeks ago, maybe a couple weeks ago. Um, and we were interested in the question of how is experiencing a live concert different from experiencing a streamed concert or a watching a recorded concert. And so what we did is we had participants come um, to a concert. It was at my university. It was a university band and a army band. There was like a, an army base right next to our college. And so this is a collaboration with a guy from West Point at the U.S. Military Academy. And um, so that was our first question was the difference between a live concert and a stream concert. The second question was, um, is there, do, so the army band director was kind of interested in, you know, what kind of music do people like best when an army band plays? Do they want to hear like U.S. patriotic music or do they like to hear just other non, you know, generic music. So each band played two pieces of music. They each played a patriotic piece of music and a just generic band piece of music. And so during the music, we had participants rate how much they were liking the music. And so then people did this live. And then we had uh, another set of participants come into the lab and watch the recorded version of the concert and do the ratings. And so what we found was that there was actually less difference between the live and the, the lab recorded condition that we expected. We saw very minimal differences. That's not to say that there's no difference between a live concert and a recorded one. There's not, there is, I mean, there's, there's difference. It's just, I think our measure, we were asking people, how much do you like this song? And I think people were, were 
able, I mean, they like, I think that's encouraging for right now during COVID suggesting that people do enjoy live, like recorded, uh, you know, video concerts if they can't go to the live thing. Did you ask conscious or subconscious? Did you measure conscious or subconscious? Yeah, we, no, we just had people rate. So it's an explicit rating. So we said rate, how much, you, how much are you enjoying the music right now at the present moment? And they use like a, slide, a scale on their cell phone where they would go like this to make more, they would spread their fingers to make more, say, I like it more. They would close their fingers, say, I like it less. So people, they're, they, they would use the whole rating scale. So, and, and they didn't know, like the people in the lab didn't know that the alternative was a concert. You know, they didn't, we didn't have the same people do both. both yeah. um, so I think when, I think there might be, there's probably a difference if, you know, your alternative is going to a concert, you probably are going to rate the recorded version worse. Mm. But if the option is the recorded version, then I think you still like it. So I, I suspect that's why we didn't see a difference that because people didn't know the other condition was an option um, that that when asked to rate this the video version people still liked it um, well if you but, don't ask the both question if you only ask one of them but if you would ask them in in the same person the two of them yeah so if we had people if we had the same person go to the concert and to the lab they probably would like the lab worse because it's not in the concert <laughs> but the reason we didn't do that is because we didn't want people to have heard the same like i've there you know we wanted them to be hearing the pieces for the very first time because then you have all these repetition effects and there would be an order effect like we couldn't anytime you do an experiment where you have two conditions and the same people you want to balance the order. you don't want everyone doing the concert first and then the lab second and so we couldn't have balanced anyway yeah, we did, yeah. I don't want to get into the research methods here, but but yeah, so we did different groups. Yeah. Um, the the takeaway is that people like if if you don't have the option of going to a live concert, a recorded concert is a reasonable alternative that people will still like. Um, the main focus, though, of the main interesting result I think that we found was that people liked. We call it congruent, um, but people liked the army band playing the patriotic song better than the non-patriotic song. And they liked the university band playing the non-patriotic song better than the patriotic song. So they seemed to like the pieces of music that were congruent or fitting with the band. That our explanation is that people expect to hear an army band play military patriotic pieces. Um, and so I think that that, you know, has implications for programming bands you know determining what they're going to play yeah. kind of the idea of congruency i think does fit with the branding you know idea no, that you want your whole you want your audio and your visual to kind of match and and have the same feel to it because people like it better when you have this congruent kind of synchronous picture i guess the yeah, sound and yeah. the images are together but this is why it's so interesting that that not just talk about research that is done on branding, but also like in other contexts, what it has to do with humans and the brain and the music to understand the importance uh, of the effect. Because sometimes people in branding, yeah, they, they don't really get it if you keep talking about the branding. But, but then I want to know, my last question is, what is your dream project? If you could just choose anything you dreamt about researching and with any brand or any whatever, what would that be? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's so funny. I feel like we're, we're kind of limited, you know, by feasibility. Um, so thinking about like, 
dreaming big um, is not something I really do, I guess, not to say that I think small, but um, I think my, like, kind of getting back at the whole question about why does music work in patients with Alzheimer's disease, I would probably pursue something along that lines, like doing some systematic research, drawing from my stuff that I did with like the music and memories from the billboard charts and the faces. I would probably do more work on that line, looking at it with persons with Alzheimer's disease, um, really trying to get at how does music work to revive memories, to trigger memories, I guess. Um, what certain aspects of a person make them well suited to these types of music? Um, and I would love to work with like music therapists to actually work on developing like interventions based on basic research to help use music in a more effective way to um, you know, kind of evoke memories and associated emotions in this population. I would probably do a series of experiments looking at that, those kind of questions. Amy, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking about all your important research, really. Yeah, this is great. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. You're welcome. And if people want to learn more about you and read uh, your research more in depth, how can yeah, they get out to you? They can go to my website. It's just amybelfi.com. Um, my contact information's on there. Feel free to um, reach out via email if they have any questions. I'm always happy to talk about these types of things with people. Lovely. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Well, that's all for today's episode of The Power of Audio, Science and AI. I'm Jasmine Moradi, your host, and thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and support by sharing this content on your social media. This episode is supported by Stockholm Music City.